Welcome to the Next in Health podcast. I'm Jenny Colapitro, PwC's Vice Chair for Health Industries, working across pharmaceuticals, medtech, payers, and providers. And I'm Igor Belakronitsky, a principal with PwC Strategy End, where I get to help leading health organizations with their strategies and operating models. And on the Next in Health podcast, we talk about building the future of healthcare block by block, piece by piece. And today we'll talk about a very important component of building the future of healthcare, which is the finance function and the role of the finance function in what is next in health. And to have this conversation, we are delighted to invite a special guest, Tatiana Simonelli. She's the Senior VP of Finance from Bristol Myers Squibb from BMS. And we're also very happy to welcome back Greg Rotz. He's a principal with PwC Strategy End and a transformation leader for PwC's pharma and life sciences practice. So welcome, Tatiana, and welcome, Greg. Great to be here. Great to be here. So Greg's a veteran of the show, but Tatiana, you're new. So perhaps you could get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you very much for inviting me. As you shared earlier, I'm the SVP of Finance for Global Commercialization Function in Bristol-Myers Squibb. We are on a mission to help patients prevail over serious diseases by bringing them the innovative medicines they need. My remit includes oversight of the $45 billion revenues generated by the company and all of the investments we make to support commercialization. I've been in BMS for almost 15 years, having previously worked at Procter & Gamble. In addition to many roles in finance, I worked in insights and analytics function, as well as business development. On a personal side, I've lived in several countries, specifically Russia, Italy, and the US, and traveled to more than other 40 countries. I have three children, and I found passion for road cycling five years ago while raising funds for cancer patients. Thank you for that background, Tatiana. You have an impressive set of experiences to draw from, and I'm looking forward to the discussion today. To set the stage, Greg, maybe let's start with you. We're halfway through 2023. What type of changes are we anticipating for the pharmaceutical industry? Thanks, Jenny. Great to be back. It is a year of big changes in the pharmaceutical sector. And the conversation we're having is really working through the following conundrum. And that is, there have been a massive amount of innovations in medicine, real breakthroughs in science, real breakthroughs, as everyone knows, in the COVID vaccines the last few years and other exciting breakthroughs that will really help serve that mission that Tatiana was talking about and helping patients prevail over disease. But what we've not seen is translating all of that great innovative science into superior financial returns for the industry. In fact, if you look back over the last five years, despite all of these great advances in medicine, the pharmaceutical sector has really kind of performed at parity with the rest of the capital markets. So the conversations we've been having this year are really about four big changes. One is challenging the operating model to get really fit for growth and make sure resources are invested in the absolute highest value areas. The second, perhaps no surprise for anybody who follows the business press, is digitizing the value chain and really harnessing these next generation technologies like generative AI to really cause a breakthrough in both the pace of business and the efficiency. The third is adapting the business model and the cost structure and other elements of the business to the new pricing realities that the industry faces. 
And finally, we do anticipate that the deals market will continue to bounce back after a pretty slow time last year. And we would anticipate that winning in the M&A market as the deals market comes back is going to be an important priority for the rest of the year. So those are the four big changes that we're really talking about. Thank you, Greg. These are quite interesting. And we'll come back in a moment to some of the things you mentioned, like fit for growth and the digitization. But maybe next, Tatiana, as you hear Greg describing the current moment, you're a senior executive, you're a finance leader, you're on the front lines of all of this. So what does it make you think of when you hear Greg's description of the current moment? Yes, all the observations that Greg just now shared fully resonate with me. The science has advanced incredibly over the past several years and more to come in the nearest future. That leads for more options for patients, which is great. And it also gives additional motivation for all of us in the healthcare industry, since we'll have more opportunities to positively impact people's lives. This will not happen by itself, though. We need to evolve in the way we are operating since there will be also some headwinds. With the increased productivity of science, there will be more competition. The product life cycles will get shorter since standards of care will be displaced earlier. And as we already mentioned, there is significant higher payer pressure since they need to pay in many cases for all of that innovation. In order to not only survive, but thrive in this environment, the companies need to adapt approaches across the whole value chain in the way they develop the products, in the way they commercialize them, and what is near and dear to my heart in how we are allocating resources to support companies in achieving their strategies. And Tatiana, how do you see the role of finance in helping pharmaceutical companies drive this change? Finance is uniquely positioned to support companies on this journey because finance has the visibility across the totality of the enterprise. Finance as a function has been evolving already since quite some time from being a controller to true business partner. We need to take it one step up and move from business partnership concept to seeing ourselves more as a co-pilot and co-owner of the business. And this starts from the very beginning when finance has an opportunity to influence the strategy of the companies, but then also finance has a chance to influence the execution, how the strategy is being pulled through, playing the role of a valuable portfolio manager, business advisor, risk manager, and also the change agent. This is what I mean when I refer to finance role in the future as co-pilot or co-owner. That is a very compelling notion and it really resonates. And so maybe if indeed finance is the co-pilot and you're together there in the cockpit and you're seeing some turbulence ahead, as indeed we are anticipating some economic turbulence in the marketplace, Perhaps, Greg, that is why you're bringing up this notion of becoming more fit for growth and more resilient to prepare for the financial uncertainty ahead. So maybe, Greg, let's come back to the fit for growth trend that you began with. Yeah, you're spot on, Igor. That's exactly what's behind it. I think as we look across the economy today, no industry is immune from what's happening with 
higher inflation, labor market increases, higher interest rates driving higher capital costs, ongoing concerns about consumer spending and ability to pay if there is, in fact, an economic slowdown. And as you look across the world, variation across the global economies. And uh, as we've alluded to, while any company faces those challenges, I think the pharmaceutical sector faces a number of industry-specific drivers that Tatiana mentioned, right? Faster changes to standards of care, more competition, smaller patient populations as precision medicine comes into play. So that means if you're sitting on top of billions of dollars of investment to discover and develop and commercialize medicines, it's just simply more important than ever at this moment to make sure that choices on where to invest and how to invest are what's really going to align with value because there's less room for error. There's more pressure on the margin line. And that's really what we mean by getting fit for growth. It's about being super clear on what are the priorities, what are the drivers, super clear about the investment choices that align to that and making sure that we're really putting our money where we can drive differentiation and where we're more table stakes, we try to lean out and be as efficient as possible. And as simple as that seems, in large, complex organizations that work across all the markets in the world, there are a lot of forces that can get in the way of bringing that simple concept to life. Greg, I love that simple distillation of what we mean by getting fit for growth, just aligning investment choices with value. Tatiana, I know this topic of resource allocation is an important one for you and for your company. In your experience, what have you seen work? So in my business within Bristol Myers Squibb, we've made explicit decisions and investments to make resource allocation a real capability. We see budgeting as a strategic process to align spending with the real drivers of value in our business. We decomposed the resource allocation capability into four specific steps. First, the business needs to be clear about priorities, and we are calling them strategic investment priorities, and they are defined as part of the strategic plan. And those priorities should not only be clarified, but they should be also appropriately communicated in the organization so that all units are planning accordingly in order to achieve those priorities. The second step is to ensure that there is clarity how investments are aligned with those priorities. For example, we are using tools like product PLs, therapeutic area PLs clearly calling out how much we're investing in specific differentiated capabilities that we believe will position us to succeed in the future. Once it is clear how much we invest in behind priorities, then there is a need to use analytics to understand if that spend is productive. And in doing so, we are combining financial and non-financial data that allows for ranking of those investments, and that ultimately helps the very last and important step, which are the trade-off discussions. Those should be done at all levels in the organization, within units, but then also across the company, supported by data and analytics, and in the way that is aligned to the priorities that were clarified in the very beginning. It might sound very simple, just four-step process, 
but in reality, it is not. All of this should be tailored to the company culture. Companies are very different. And defining strategic investment priorities might mean different things to different leaders. Building leadership alignment at that very first step proved to be super critical. Connecting financial and non-financial data is an important step, but it should be supported not only by technology, but also by using full business acumen of those leaders, since nobody in one room can identify the full set of KPIs that company need to focus on in this exercise. It should be really tailored to each individual unit. Collaboration across functions is very important. We use the term enterprise mindset in BMS, and in this process more than any other, that's exactly how leaders should approach it with enterprise mindset. Clearly, strong tone from the top is important here as in many other processes, and this is valid for both business and finance function. Driving the change takes intentional effort. And co-ownership and co-design together with business, with finance, with other analytics functions that are supporting here are key ingredients to success. Based on experience, what I can say is that we should not strive for perfection. There is no way that the whole approach can be redesigned and implemented in one budget cycle. We've experimented with pilots in some areas that help to fine-tune approach on one side, but then also see early successes and build advocacy. We should not let perfect to be enemy of good here. What is more important is a consistent improvement over time. Linking back to my cycling passion, I use the analogy that it's an endurance space. It's not a sprint. It's gradual improvements over time always keeping in mind why we are doing it and what is the end goal. Tatiana, this is really helpful. Really appreciate you pulling back the curtain, showing us how this resource allocation process could work from the process perspective, from the tools and data perspective, but also from the people perspective, which as you say, is so critical. And so now we've double clicked on resource allocation. Maybe let's zoom out next and come back to some of the other trends that Greg, you mentioned some of the things important to keep in mind in addition to resource allocation. Yeah, sure, Igor. You'll recall we had four that we mentioned at the top of the show, resource allocation, but then two, three, and four respectively were digitizing the value chain, where I think what we've seen now more than ever with the advances in technology is really high value use cases in each area of the pharmaceutical value chain, whether it's in drug discovery, whether it's in using intelligent technologies to better design clinical trials, whether it's smart factory technologies to try to get better yields out of production, or whether it's using advanced analytics in the commercialization function to better support patients and adoption of medicines. There's just a plethora now of really high value use cases across the value chain that can really generate ROI. And the challenge is to move from pilots on these different technologies or more limited use cases to real global scale and global impact. The next one that I mentioned was just adapting to the pricing realities. And I know in the U.S. here, there are ongoing challenges to the 
Inflation Reduction Act. And regardless of how you predict the outcome of that, I think what we can say is that continued scrutiny on prices is here to stay. And what does that mean for how we need to adapt the economic model and the value equation is an ongoing discussion with leaders in companies. And if the IRA stands, we know that's going to be a real milestone in the journey on pricing evolutions. And then finally, I mentioned winning in the M&A markets. Last year was a relatively quiet market in M&A for the pharmaceuticals industry. This year started with more big deals being announced, but I know there continues to be ongoing concern about the regulatory oversight, particularly on the more large-scale acquisitions. But we do know through the test of time that the pharmaceutical industry has an active deals market over time. And a number of the large pharmaceutical companies have indicated that business development is among their top priorities, whether it's outright M&A, whether it's partnerships, whether it's licensing arrangements, continuing to build strengths in what we think will be an increasingly competitive deals market will absolutely be a difference maker going forward. Tatiana, you mentioned earlier finance as a co-pilot and really helping to shape the future for pharma companies and drive execution. Do you see a role for finance in helping to drive these priorities as, as Greg just laid out? Yes, for sure. So let me elaborate on price and M&A. So starting from pricing, as with any new trend or development, finance has a possibility and should actually play this role in understanding and assessing pricing risks, help business develop ways to mitigate them and adapt operations as needed. But before that one, when we develop products, we need to be very clear what is the value of those products. As one of my colleagues in market access very often says, price is an issue in the absence of value. So finance should partner with the access pricing teams as well as with health economics teams to help model what is that value that the product will bring because that will support more informed conversations with the payers. On the other side, when the external payer environment is evolving, we need to understand what changes are temporary or permanent. And once we are clear about those permanent changes, we need to help company design and execute different operating approaches. And this was specifically referring earlier to commercialization and development. Moving further to M&A example, making big deal is not the end of the story. We need to ensure that the value of that transaction is actually realized. And in order to do it, there should be clarity about the deal value drivers from the very beginning. In some cases, it involves synergies, for example, and when finance should design fit-for-purpose tracking approach for those synergies so that business is working towards the realization. I lived with BMS through the Solgene integration. It was a great once-in-a-lifetime experience of helping both great companies to come together for the benefit of patients. But as you can imagine, when two big companies come together, they have different processes, different systems. And the same tools that were used before are not immediately available. 
we put a specific effort to understand where we can bridge with the temporary solutions in order to still advance the realization of the value. Examples could include the creation of manual product PLs even before ERP systems were integrated. Since we had to drive even more rigorous resource allocation in the more diversified portfolio. Tatiana, those are all great examples. And of course, no conversation about what is next in health would be complete without talking about the role of technology, data, and analytics. And you already gave some examples around data and analytics in describing your resource allocation processes. But above and beyond that, where else do you see the potential for technology to transform how you do work in finance? Indeed, there is a lot of possibility, but it is always important to stay focused on the value. Data is the foundation, and we've been investing to build our own internal data products to power our most valuable use cases at scale. We will evolve those data products over time and make them more and more valuable to both our data scientists and our end users. And here, clearly, we are looking at both financial and non-financial data. Once the data foundation is strong, we can then feed advanced models. Forecasting is one of the key areas of interest for me. Applying machine learning to predict where we will land at the quarter and for the year is very insightful as we progress in the financial planning cycles. Another example, and I alluded to it earlier, is resource allocation. Because applying analytics to monitor effectiveness and efficiency of our spend allows much better ranking of investment choices and ultimately leads to informed trade-off discussions. We are currently in the hyper cycle with generative AI. So this is another tool that can really democratize access to insights and analytics to everyday users, not just the advanced programmers. Clearly, this comes with the need to upskill the organization so that organization feel comfortable not only using what is produced by specialized analytical functions, but also in experimenting with those new tools. Last but not the least, better analytics should support better decision-making, which means that our leaders should become more and more comfortable in supplementing their experiences and the gut feeling with the insights coming out from these different tools. As I alluded earlier, I had the privilege of building insights and analytics functions and BMS for international markets. And we've been on the journey together with general managers and business unit leads, clarifying what are the specific business questions that are top of their mind and how we can help data support it. And you would be surprised how many times people tend to say, if data supports my gut feeling, yes, it's a good tool, it's a good outcome. If it says something to the contrary, there might be first natural reaction to reject the suggestion. That's why the buy-in is so important, because otherwise we will produce great insights, but they will not be used. Thank you, Tatiana. That definitely resonates, just leveraging better analytics to support better decision-making. Well, I know we've covered a lot of ground on the call today, so I'm going to have to bring this to a close. Tatiana, I think this has been very exciting, everything that you have undertaken Perhaps you can just share with our audience what inspires you. 
what inspires me is the mission of our industry. Because I started by saying that I'm working in the company that brings innovative solutions to many, many patients in need. And what we discuss now is only confirming that there will be more and more opportunities to do so. Yes, it can be challenging. We need to change the way we are operating at all levels. But ultimately, it's all for great good. The role of my function, finance, will continue evolving and we will have even more opportunities to drive impact and influence company strategy and execute it. And with this, multiple additional opportunities come for individuals and for teams to develop. So all in all, I think co-pilot or co-ownership is the future for finance. And in healthcare, we are in a great industry to do it. This is going to be a tough act to follow, but Greg, let's see if you can rise to the challenge. You're out there every day talking to health leaders, finance leaders. What would you say to them as you look to the months and years ahead? Yeah, thanks, Igor. It won't be too much longer before all those days out there with the market is going to add up to 30 years of doing this line of work. And if I just think about that body of work and all the finance executives that I've had the privilege to work with, certainly the ones that have been most effective have adopted this mindset around co-owner with the business. And they're talking strategically with their business counterparts about the issues we've talked about today or whatever the issues of the moment are. But I would just add, I think those folks are also among the executives who enjoy the job the most, right? Really kind of taking that business problem-solving perspective beyond just finance, beyond just the numbers, to think about what it means for customers, what it means for patients, what it means for strategy. For many of the executives I worked with, that is an exciting space to be in. It opens up new avenues for impact. So I really think this notion of co-owner, co-pilot, finance as change agent, is both key to effectiveness, but many folks may find it's also key to enjoyment. And when we get both of those things going in our professional life, it makes a real difference. Well, speaking of enjoyment, we really enjoyed having you on, Greg and Tatiana. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. For more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please be sure to subscribe to our podcasts. That way you can also get access to previous episodes where we covered some of the other topics we touched on today, like what is next in pharma life sciences. We have previous conversations with Greg. We also have covered the Inflation Reduction Act that Greg alluded to. And we have an episode coming up on what is happening in the M&A and deal space at a mid-year point in 2023. So please be sure to subscribe. And until next time, this has been Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.